Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before we begin, this series features remarkable stories told by remarkable people. Some of the events they discuss and some of the words they use to describe their experiences can be quite colourful. This programme contains explicit language, descriptions of an adult nature, and a reference to suicidal ideation that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. There was a volunteer, um, an older gentleman, sitting at the phones in his underwear, just completely in his underwear. Um, with other volunteers sitting around. And I walked in, and I don't remember his name, but I'll, you know, I'll say Joe. And I'll, you know, I was like, Joe, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? And he's like, I just feel more comfortable like this. And I just said, like, Joe, you got to put your clothes on. Or if you don't want to put your clothes on, you got to go home. But you can't volunteer her in your underwear. And people gave me hell. You know, it was like, you don't have the right to do that. Why, if he wants to be in his underwear, it's like, well, I guess if he wants to be naked, he can be naked. And it's like, no, 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 he can't. This is Brad Becker. Okay, I'll start recording. Whereabouts are you based currently? Uh, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, that's where our offices are. But all of our volunteers work remotely, um, particularly now, but pretty much all the time. So we have volunteers um, throughout the U.S. We also believe have a volunteer in the UK and in Canada. Um, so our volunteers are all over. If you've ever watched one of those cliched films about a sheltered, starry-eyed boy who moves from his suburban town to the big city, where he suddenly discovers a brand new world he never knew existed, well, Brad is that sort of guy. He's very charming, very polite, and he grew up in a place where he never came into contact with other queer people. That all changed, however, when he moved to New York. And it was in Manhattan, in this new queer paradise, where Brad stumbled into something that would end up becoming a lifelong calling. He joined the Gay Switchboard of New York, now called the LGBT National Help Centre, an iconic phone service providing vital information and support to New York's queer community. He'd end up volunteering with the Switchboard for nearly 40 years, eventually becoming its president, And the work Brad does, it acts as a kind of mirror for the changes the LGBTQ community has experienced in the last few decades. You're listening to Call Me Mother, a collection of conversations with queer elders. I'm Sean Fay. Each episode, I'll be talking with an LGBTQ trailblazer who has something important, interesting or enlightening to say about what it means to be queer in the world today. By talking to older queer people, we want the stories in this series to create a sense of community across generational lines. By the end, our hope is that you have the language you need to grapple with new experiences by showing that you belong to a much broader history. This episode, the Long Island local who became Queer America's best listener. You grew up in Long Island. I was wondering if, or particularly for British listeners, you could describe 
what kind of community that is like and what it is like to grow up somewhere like Long Island. Long Island is very much a typical suburb. It's um, quiet residential streets with houses out on the side, you know, um, on the grass. Um, a lot of the um, areas of Long Island are kind of, uh, the, the houses are very similar to each other. That was done by one developer. So every house is kind of the same. Each homeowner would try to make their own little flourish on the house to make it look a little bit different. But um, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but it was, it was, they were similar. My dad worked and my mom for the most part didn't. Um, there was no question as to kind of who was in charge at home. And that was my father. I, I mean, I remember one conversation, one incident with my parents where um, my mom had to like co-sign some contract or something. Um, and my and I was sitting at the table with my mother and my father came over and he had already, he was a lawyer, so he had prepared this contract that my mom had to sign for something. And he put his hands over the entire piece of paper except where she was supposed to sign and said to her, I need you to sign this. And, you know, I looked at him and, and she said, well, what am I signing? And he said, don't you trust me? And she said, yeah, I trust you. What am I signing? And she, he said, well, if you trust me, you're just going to sign it. And she just signed it, you know, and he walked away. And I was, I, I mean, I remember I was blown away as a kid that that was acceptable behavior on anyone's part there. Did that secrete your own expectations about how your own life would be and, and what sort of lifestyle you would expect? I assumed I would get married to a woman at some point. We'd have kids and we'd live somewhere on Long Island. And I don't know, I'd be an accountant or something. <laughs> it's what I probably figured would happen. Um, as far as I knew, there were no other gay people. There were no gay people at all anywhere on Long Island. Um, there, there were no pride parades. There were no, um, there was no indication of anything other than straight married couples living, um, living on Long Island. I never saw an image of someone that um, resembled me in, in any way you wanted to find that. And so I honestly, and it sounds so absurd now, but I honestly thought, well, I, I can't be gay because I don't want to wear a dress and I don't want to wear leather. So I, I literally can't be gay. Looking back on it now, I think like, oh my God, what an idiot I was. But at that time, given those two, those only, those two depictions, um, I didn't fit. So I figured, okay, that means I'm not gay. That all changed for Brad not long after his 23rd birthday. My best friend from high school, who I remained friends with um, in my 20s, um, was going to grad school at Yale and um, had come home to um, visit. And we were hanging out on a weekend and he came out to me. It was this, you know, revelation of, oh my gosh, you know, a gay person can look like this. This is my best friend. You know, he looks like me. We hung out together. We did the same things. And it was just like puzzle pieces all falling into place. He said he had a lot of gay friends up in New Haven at Yale. And um, I said, like, do you think I could come there this weekend with you and just stay there this weekend? And he, he said, sure. And so we did. And I remember him taking me to my first gay bar there. And um, it was amazing because, you know, there were so many different emotions running through my head. One was like, oh, my gosh, I'm home. <laughs> you know, and the other was a bit of a shock at first of like, 
there's two guys dancing with each other. There's there's two women dancing with each other. And it wasn't anything of like feeling like it wasn't right or it was bad. It was just like, I had never seen that. And then it was, you know, a bit of a kid in a candy store seeing all these, you know, these gay guys around. It's not that I went home with the bar, you know, it's just <laughs> that um, I just felt like, wow, I can, I can look around and everyone else's and it's just quite normal. Not long after this trip to New Haven, Brad decided he'd had enough of Long Island. Having seen what life could be like for a gay man in his 20s, he figured there was only one thing for it. He packed his bags and headed to New York. I really wanted to be in a, in a place where there were other people like me. And so I moved to Christopher Street in Manhattan, was where I lived. Uh, I was just like, I'm just going to Ground Zero, and that's where I'm going to live. And I loved it. I really loved it. It was it was... You know, it was when Christopher Street and the West Village was still an LGBT community. Now it's it's less so, unfortunately. But, um, you know, pretty much everybody there was. And it was just such a wonderful feeling um, to be able to just be surrounded by other people like me after having grown up in the suburbs as I did. Almost immediately, Brad took to his new city like a duck to water. He settled into a new apartment, found himself his first proper boyfriend, and eventually the two of them decided to move in together. There was just one catch, only something small. Brad would be home alone for hours on end while his partner worked long, late night shifts in retail. I was just getting bored. And so um, I decided to look into volunteer opportunities. And I saw that there was a posting for volunteers needed at the New York switchboard. And part of the process of being able to be a volunteer was you had to do um, what, what's called kind of role plays, where um, people from the, the training committee would pretend to be callers and you'd pretend to be a volunteer. And this was on like your first night walking in there. And they would just present a scenario and they wanted to see how you would handle it as a volunteer. And so the scenario they gave me, um, which they did not set up for me beforehand, they just started it, but, but just for background, the scenario was this guy that went to leather bars and his friends found out and they were judging him because he went to a leather bar. Um, but the way they presented the call to me as a, as a volunteer was by just naming the leather bar. It was just like, I, I go to the Eagle a lot and my friends are making me. Well, I had no idea what the Eagle was. <laughs> I didn't know that the Eagle bar was a leather bar. I didn't know this. So I'm, I'm just like missing the whole point of this, this call. And at one point, the um, person interviewing me stopped me and said, do you know what the Eagle you know, Eagle is, you know, or what was like manhole or whatever, you know, name it was back then. And I'm like, I assume it's a gay bar. And they all were laughing. And they said, you're the first volunteer we've ever had who didn't know what that bar was. And I'm like shrinking in my seat, feeling like I should be like highly apologetic. But I'm like, I don't know. I grew up on an island. I don't, I don't know what that bar is. Um, and, and they laughed, but they said, you know, actually that's good because you know, there, sh there should be diversity among our volunteers, just like our callers. And so it didn't exclude me. But they all thought it was hysterical that I did not know what this bar was. And I passed. So um, that was my introduction to, to the organization. I really loved it. And that's what it, it went from just being kind of something to do when my partner wasn't around to being something that I just got immersed in more and more. The calls that we got the most of were bar calls. I mean, the ones I could think of, it was anything from, you know, be like neighborhood bar, which was like your local dive bar, um, Western, 
leather, preppy, older dance bar. Um, I mean, these are the ones that just pop it into my head after you know a very long time. But it was it was pretty niche. And um, so what we did was we had three boxes of bar uh, bar cards, and they were just index cards. And we had the same bar listed on three different cards. And one box would be out al- would be in alphabetical order. So if the caller said, "Here's the name of the bar. Where is it?" You could just alphabetically find the bar and give them the address and phone number. Another was by location. So um, I'm up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Where are their bars? And you could look up Upper West Side. And the other was by type of bar. So I'm looking for a leather bar or a dance bar or whatever, and you could look it up that way. Um, and that all worked great until someone said to another volunteer, can you pass me the, the bar cards? And you would do it, and you would accidentally drop the box. And all of the cards would just you know splatter across the floor. Well, we literally would have to close the hotline down while we re, you know, re-alphabetize these 200 cards that were in there, were putting back in the right neighborhoods of the right type. So it was, you know, it was very much um, a grassroots kind of very simple process back then. Now we're all computerized and we don't have to worry about that. But we were in this little tiny um, office where we had like three people in there at a time answering calls and we're like shoulder to shoulder doing this and, you know, trying to find information. But the people calling us, thought that they were calling a place like American Airlines Reservation Center, where there were like 200 people all sitting there with, you know, headsets and, you know, computer systems and all of this. And so they completely did not understand how basic we were. But it wasn't just the callers that were benefiting from the switchboard's call service. Volunteers took something from it too. You know, if you volunteered the same time each week, it would usually be the same people. So you'd kind of get to know them or maybe a new person would come in and you'd get to know them. And in between calls, you would just chat a little bit. And so you would slowly, um, in, in little pieces, get to know the other people you were volunteering with. Because as soon as the phone rang, you had to stop. And you know, and then it was like, where was I? And then you'd you know, talk, you know, have a personal conversation again. And I also grew tremendously as a person because my life experiences were very limited up until that time. Um, and talking to whoever happened to call the hotline their life experiences were completely different than mine. And it really helped me understand, first of all, how sheltered I was, um, and understand the huge range and diversity of the community because there were people that were doing things that were totally foreign to me, that were perfectly fine and wonderful, but just were different from me. And so it gave me a chance to experience um, the community in a way I never, ever would have had I just stayed with my little circle of friends from Long Island. It was not professional in the way that it, it should have been. And I was not in any position of you know leadership or anything. I was like a, a new volunteer. So I was not in a position to say like, oh, you shouldn't really be doing that. But you would come in and there would just be, you know, and this is pre-internet. So every all the porn was in magazines and people would just like rip out pictures of, you know, full on, you know, sexual things and just tape them onto the walls of the hotline. And you'd walk in and be like, whoa, okay. And, you know, it's not that I was disappointed to see it, but it really wasn't the place for it. And, you know, and then people would wonder like, huh, I wonder why it's only men that volunteer here. We don't seem to get many women. And I'm like, well, look at your walls, you know. I guess in many ways, it's just gay men mirroring what in the 70s and early 80s straight men would have done in really masculine working environments, except it would have been born with women in it. <laughs> so it's kind of just, it's more of its time than about sexuality, perhaps. I'm certainly not a prude and I have no problems, you know, looking at porn, but 
Um, you know, it just didn't seem like the appropriate place for it to be. And it certainly didn't seem like it was a way to welcome anyone other than, than gay men. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Gradually, as the switchboard grew, the volunteers took steps to make the organization more inclusive. After one particularly heated debate, they stopped calling themselves the Gay Switchboard of New York and instead became the Gay and Lesbian Switchboard of New York. From there, greater representation for trans and other queer identities followed. But just as things were beginning to improve, 1980s New York brought with it a brand new threat. I remember the one rule we had, because we would give out bathhouse referrals a lot too, um, was the, the rule that the organization had was you couldn't give out a bathhouse referral unless you first asked, did they have any questions about AIDS? Finding out that they were HIV positive or finding out that, in their words, they had AIDS um, was so much bigger than just them being sick. It, it meant that their family was going to ultimately find out because in their mind they were projecting, you know, being unable to care for themselves and their parents having to do it or refuse to do it. It meant not being able to continue in their job. It meant their friends and relatives finding out. So for them, it was a dual thing of both finding out that they were, they were sick and also being forced to come out feeling that they were being forced to come out when they were not ready to do this. And quite a few callers, I remember telling me that even for those that were out, I I remember a number of callers telling me, like, when I came out to my mom or I came out to my dad, you know, five years ago, he said, "Um, you're just going to get sick and die of AIDS. And how hurtful that was for them to hear that. And now they, they did get sick. And so in many ways for them... This confirmed that they were doing something wrong. It's like, see, I got the punishment that my parents warned me about. If I hadn't been gay, this wouldn't have happened to me. 
I remember there were times, and we would tell other people, and I certainly took advantage of it, where you'd say, if you get done with a heavy-duty call, you don't have to answer the next phone that rings. You can put the phone down, and you can like take a walk around the block. You can take a walk around the floor of the office building. You know, you can just turn to the person that you're volunteering with and say, like, can we just talk for a few minutes because I'm just kind of blown away here. And I think that having that outlet was really one of the keys to being able to process it and then move forward with it. That if you just took it in and took it in and took it in and you never talked to anyone about it, um, I don't I don't think you could really survive it. These calls taught Brad a valuable lesson about his work at the switchboard. It was a very good example of how you're not going to fix the problem. There's nothing you can say that's going to change their HIV status, but you can talk with them about how they're dealing with it, what, what possible avenues do they have to get more support, letting them know about aid service organizations that, were exist, you know, that existed, um, and connecting them into a, a community that way. And that was really important to them. The hotline that Brad runs today looks very different to the switchboard he joined in New York in 1986. For starters, the helpline is national. Brad and his team of volunteers now take calls from all across the US. The boxes of bar cards are long gone, so is the porn, and where once callers would treat the service like a queer yellow pages, now they ring looking for advice and a friendly ear to help them through difficult times. But at its core, the LGBT National Help Centre continues to do what it's always done, act as a point of connection and community for queer people throughout America. One thing I remember reading, actually, in 2016 was that there was a lot of calls to um, distress helplines and LGBT support things in in direct response to the election of Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Um, is that something that you noticed too? It's interesting that you mentioned that because I have been answering phone calls since 1988. Um, I started in 86. I left the, the organization for a couple of years, came back in 1988 and kind of didn't leave since. And I answered calls from 1988 on 2016, beginning of 2017, I burned out. And it was directly related to two things that happened in 2016. One was Trump getting elected and the other was the Pulse nightclub shooting that had happened in Florida. And I, I remember... You know, when I looked at the news, I think the um, the shooting at um, Pulse nightclub happened, I believe, on a Saturday night. And so I, I'm kind of a news junkie. And so I turned on, um, I, I looked on CNN's website on Sunday morning and saw this huge headline. And I was just like, whoa, you know, what happened? And um, was just so devastated personally. And after I started to process that, I thought, holy crap, we have to get every volunteer we possibly can to be available tomorrow for the hotline because we are just going to get slammed. And and we did. And so, yes, um, our calls are very much affected by what happens um, out, out in the world and out in the country. Obviously, you must have taken, I don't know how many calls. Probably it would be difficult to estimate. But I'm just wondering if there's like a story of one call that you'll never forget is there anything like that that stands out from the decades that you've been taking calls from this community? A call I had when the national hotline first opened in 1996. You know, he was doing good. He was this, you know, cool little 15-year-old kid who was just talking about his life and that he felt fine being gay. And he was talking about he wanted to go to college. And he asked me, um, 
he was thinking about going to NYU, New York University, um, and, and asking, do you think there are any other gay people there? Well, you know, NYU was like crawling with gay people. Like, are you kidding me? You know, I don't know if you're ever going to find a straight person at NYU. And we were just like having this just fun, lighthearted conversation. And I thought the call was kind of wrapping up and it was just a pleasant call. And then he said, you know, can I just mention one other thing? And I said, sure. And he said to me, you know, when I come home from school every day, and he was in kind of rural area, he said that he had to walk over this this high bridge and underneath was this this kind of river, I guess. And he said that he would, every day on his way home, he would get to the middle of the bridge and he would look over the edge and he would try to decide whether that was the day he wanted to jump or not. And it floored me. Um, I just did not see that coming. Usually, and, and I've spoken to many people, unfortunately, that are suicidal, you, you kind of get a sense of it pretty early in the call. And this just came out of nowhere. And I asked him, I said, what, what's going on that, that causes you to, to think about that? Um, and he said, well, I feel fine being gay, but nobody else around me does. And so he went on to explain how his parents were tremendously homophobic, that people he knew at school were so homophobic and how isolated he felt and that he was feeling suicidal. And what I thought was the ending of a phone call became the beginning of a phone call. And we went, we probably stayed on the phone another hour or so after that, talking about those feelings that he had and how it affected him and how he could, again, get through it. And while he deserved to have his friends and family be supportive, he couldn't make that happen. But what could he do within his own, his own self to, to deal with that? And so we talked about a lot of things. And after about an hour, the call was wrapping up. And he said to me, um, you know, when I walk home from school every day, I'm still going to stop at that bridge but I don't think I'm going to be looking down and thinking about jumping anymore. I I was just blown away by it. That is the reason why you come in when you're tired and it's pouring rain out and you really want to like go out to dinner with your friends. This is why we're here. This is why we exist. And that call has stayed with me for um, 25 years. think a lot of younger LGBTQ people don't have the avenue to have connections or conversations with older LGBTQ people. Um, but you obviously have, like, because of the work you do, you do maintain that connection. And do you think there are things that younger LGBTQ people have to learn from older, older LGBTQ people? And I suppose the other way around, do you think the two sides of those, that age gap ha- have could be having better or more interesting conversations and learning from each other? Yeah, I think very much so. I think some of the most rewarding calls I have are with younger callers, and I think that's true for a lot of people. And I think older older callers talking to a younger volunteer is also very helpful. I mean, I can remember being, you know, in my teens and feeling that whatever I was feeling at that moment was the way it's going to feel forever. That you know, the way it is now is the way it's always going to be. Um, you know, I remember. You know, emotions get much bigger when you're in your teens than when you're an adult sometimes. Um, you know, a breakup takes on a significance that it might not when you're 35, but when you're 15, it's the end of the world. And so, I mean, I think we're very careful to not want to appear as these, like, wise older people giving these this sage advice to people because that's, um, I think, can be offensive to, to other people, to younger people. But you can give that perspective. And so... You know, you can say, you know, the way it is right now sucks. 
it, it, it really sucks. But things change. Whether you want them to or not, things are going to change. And so if you can figure out a way to hang in there, and we can talk about how you can do that. What support systems can you have either external to yourself or within yourself to get through this situation, whether it be COVID or whether it be other things. If you can get through that, it changes. And while I can't promise you that your life will be wonderful, I'm never going to say that to anyone. I can't predict the future for anyone. I can tell you that it'll be different. But the biggest thing is you got to be there for that. You've been listening to Call Me Mother, produced by Novel and supported by the Audio Content Fund. This series is presented by me, Sean Fay. It was produced and edited by Thomas Curry and Pippa Smith. Our executive producers were Max O'Brien and Sean Glynn. This episode was mixed by Joel Cox. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.